everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Our guest today is Anish Acharya. He's a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, where he invests primarily in financial services and adjacent technologies. Prior to joining A16Z, Anish held multiple roles at Credit Karma, and before that, he founded two different startups, including Social Deck, a social gaming company that was acquired by Google in 2010. In this episode, we talk about his transition from operator to investor, the evolution of his investing approach, why all of his best career decisions have mostly been focused on people, and why he believes there's a huge opportunity in fintech for the Gen Z generation. Finally, Anish is a passionate DJ and loves to spin records. So as a bonus for our listeners, we have included a few minutes of his latest mix at the end of the show. And now join me in a wonderful conversation with Anish Acharya. Anish, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Welcome. We're excited to have you. Maybe we can get started by hearing a bit about yourself and how did you get to your current role? Thanks, Miguel. Really excited to be here. You know, Miguel, I've mostly been a founder. Investing is something I've been doing for the last year as my primary focus. I did a little bit of it in my background. You know, I did a bit of angel investing and I was at Google Ventures for a little while, but I've always considered myself to be primarily a builder. So it was with a little bit of surprise that I found myself at Andreessen a year ago, but the work's been incredible. You know, fintech is inflecting. It's at this really exciting place as an ecosystem. The founders are more ambitious than ever before and working on more ambitious products. And it's been a ton of fun being a part of that so far. So Anish, before we go into your experience as an investor, maybe you can Mm -hmm. tell us a bit about your experience as a founder and then talk about that transition. Because you you launched two companies, if I'm not mistaken, Snowball and Social Deck. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the two companies were built at times that were almost polar opposite. So I faced two different set of challenges that were both interesting. You know, I started my career at Amazon. I left in 2007 to start Social Deck. 2007, I was a founder in my 20s. Markets had only ever gone up and to the right, at least for me as a professional. So I assumed that would continue. And 2007 seemed like a great time to start a company. You know, 2008 happened. And something really interesting happened, actually. We saw an economic cycle and a product cycle. So we're all familiar with what happened from an economic perspective, you know, with the Great Recession. But from a product cycle perspective, you know, mobile arrived, at least mobile smartphones arrived. And it was a bigger deal, I think, than anyone had expected at the time. So by 2009, it was a very strange environment where it was almost impossible to raise venture capital, but it was actually really easy to build and launch a product that got millions of users. So we sort of went through that journey. You know, we built, we launched um, a product that was a social network for mobile games. We got to millions of users. We raised a little bit of money and we sold it to Google in 2010. It was a very interesting dichotomy of investors, hard users, easy. After spending a few years at Google, I built my second company that I spun at Google Ventures called Snowball. And then it was the polar opposite. You know, it was much, much easier to get investors But all of a sudden, the mobile ecosystems had matured pretty significantly, and it was very difficult to get users. And the sort of bar for product market fit had gotten a lot higher. So in a way, that was a more frustrating challenge, because I think the motion that you really have have to have mastered these days, and certainly those days, is marketing. Whereas 10 years ago, you could actually win by just having a better product. 
where would you say we are now when it comes to the difficulty of investors versus users? Yeah, look, I think there's a very healthy market for startups to raise capital right now. And it seems like it's healthier than it's ever been, which I wouldn't have predicted in March, which is fantastic. I think for fintech, it's actually easier to get users than it is for other types of products. I think if you look at a lot of categories like communication or transportation, those categories have matured. So if you actually want to launch a competitor to Uber or WhatsApp today, you know, God help you, it's, it's going to take a lot of work or a very focused strategy. If you take a look at financial services, you know, the bar has been so low from incumbents and there's been so much pullback that it's actually a lot easier to get users in that category than it is in other categories. So, you know, fintech is exciting because it's both easy to get users and easy or at least easier to get investors than it is in other categories. So Anish, after launching two successful startups, um, why not go for a third, but instead join A16Z? You know, the thing about Andreessen, there's a couple of things that happened. You know, one, as I got to know the team, I just fell in love with the team. And all of my best career decisions have mostly been focused on the people. You know, the reason I went to Credit Karma, I was not an expert in fintech prior to going there. And I really bet on a leader that I really wanted to work with. And it was a transformational experience for my career. So with Andreessen, it happened opportunistically. And as I met you know, Mark and Alex and Angela and Andrew and a bunch of other folks on the team. I just enjoyed the conversation so much and wanted to keep having them. I think that was a big part of my decision. Another was just that Andreessen was really specializing and betting on fintech. You know, I think if you look today, there's a lot of generalist investors and there's a lot more interest in fintech, but there is just not as much specialization. And look, I think some fintech companies can be evaluated the way you would a traditional consumer company or an enterprise company. But there's a lot of nuances that create exceptions to the general rules. And I felt like Andreessen was a place that really got that and really had built a team and a strategy against it. So I like the approach and I like the people. You mentioned that you have been an angel investor for a while, and that's actually the case for a good number of folks in the industry. Mm -hmm. But you've actually made the transition. Now you're doing it officially, professionally, that is, right? How has your investing approach evolved, particularly, I guess, over the last couple of years? I think as an angel, I really just focused on investing in all the smart people I knew. I had a pretty simple strategy, which actually turns out to be a pretty reasonable strategy at all stages. I think the difference in moving from a sort of angel investor to a professional investor is considering things like conflict risk. You know, we only bet on a single company per category, and we have to choose really carefully. It's been a long-held principle for us since Mark and Ben started the firm. And as an angel investor, you don't really carry risks like that, and you don't really see enough deals typically that's actually an issue. There are sort of nuances like that, but I'd say that you know, generally in professional investing is a maturation of the stuff that you do as an angel. And when it comes to deal flow, what kind of deal flow are you seeing per week? I imagine it's not small. We're seeing an enormous number of companies, you know, again, talk about the difficulty of predicting sort of macroeconomic and systemic changes. In March, I assumed that we were going to have a really slow summer. And instead, it's been the opposite. The things have just not slowed down. They've sped up at all stages with all types of companies. And yeah, we're seeing a ton of companies. We're seeing companies with a lot of diversity, which I'm really excited about. You know, we're seeing things that are deep fintech. We're seeing things that are sort of pure play consumer. We're seeing a lot more international. I know you're passionate about LATAM. We're certainly making investments there and sort of believe that interesting things are happening. So 
you know, the breadth of startups as well as the sheer volume has gone up a lot. Yeah, we featured a lot of your portfolio companies, but we recently, very recently featured Adi, which is your Colombian. Oh, cool. Of investment. course. Certainly some interesting things going on there. And if I, I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about the role of a product manager, right? And also the role of product teams at fintech companies. This is a very interesting concept, obviously super important for any startup. Could you help us understand, you know, your approach to, I guess, building a good team and recognizing a good team? Absolutely. I think for product, a lot of it is about having clarity on what you want that team to do. So when you're a founder, typically you're the first product manager and you remain the sort of primary product manager for quite some time. Then as you start to think through who is your first product hire, you know, I think there's the potential for this cognitive dissonance where you feel like, hey, I need a chief product officer, I need a product executive. When in truth, you as the founder will probably be you know, making a lot of the product calls for a long time to come. And what you may instead need is someone who more owns execution versus owning vision and strategy. So I think that's an example of an inflection point where it's really important to actually have clarity on what you actually need versus what you think you should need. And I think that that sort of continues, you know, post product market fit, typically the type of product team and managers you want to hire are folks that can help scale something that's already working. Much later in the life cycle of the company, you then want folks who are once again, the sort of makers who can help design whatever the second successful product will be. So Again, different teams for different inflection points, but I think that the biggest challenge that I see is a gap between what founders think they're supposed to hire for versus what they actually need at that stage. Is this one of the key areas where you try to advise or assist your companies, your portfolio companies? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, spending time on the whiteboard, thinking through all of this stuff. You know, that's joy for me and adds value for them often, I think. So yes, it is an area that I focus. And you also focus on the credit side of things, right? Which for a consumer-focused, debt-focused fintech is extremely important. What are some of the peculiarities to consider for credit products? I think that it's important you think as a fintech about a few things. So one is what is the actual software product that pairs with the financial product? I think today we've seen a lot of new ideas around financial products, but less new ideas around the software products. You know, and ultimately something like a loan is a commodity. And if you can't actually build a smart software product around it, then you know, defensibility can be a real challenge as well as consumer value. If you're just selling a loan, then ultimately someone with a lower cost of capital, which is almost always a bank, can come along and take your customer. So I think that's sort of one really important principle, software products plus financial products. You know, another is transitioning from owning the transaction to owning the relationship. And if you look at historically sort of financial services, they really focused on transactions. You know, how do I sort of generate fees or interest from an instance of an interaction with the customer? Whereas many fintech products have an opportunity to actually have a lifelong relationship. So why did credit building, you know, why was that not a great business from an incumbent perspective? It's because it takes a really long time to monetize. And how do you maintain a relationship with a customer who's building their credit over years? Whereas in the world of mobile, where you could actually have a button on someone's phone, 
it actually did make sense to be incentivized with the customer's long-term financial health. You could help them build their credit and perhaps you actually get them a financial product in one or two or three years and that's when you make money. So the sort of nature of the relationship that you have with your customer is changing and that's something that's really critical for fintechs to think about. And speaking of the customer, a lot of the fintech products seem to be focused on the same target audience or at least similar ones. Now, that are actually focusing on Gen Z. And I know that that's also something that you spend some of your time thinking about. Is this an opportunity? Is this an opportunity for fintechs to target and to build more products for Gen Z? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think there's two ways I like to think about how you actually cut an audience. So one is by score band, you know, subprime, near prime, prime. And another actually is by what generation they're a part of. If you take a look at Gen Z, I think there's sort of two principles driving their interest in fintech. One is that they're a lot more savvy and aware. They're, you know, they grew up with technology and they can smell something that's inauthentic or manipulative from a mile away. So they have a great sort of desire for transparency. And a lot of the historical business models, you know, things like hidden fees, things like sort of variable rate, floating rate interest is something that that's actually not very transparent. So they're skeptical and rightfully skeptical. I think the other thing to consider for that generation is that, look, the traditional path to financial progress that baby boomers and Gen X had, which is, you know, buy a house, invest in the market, have a job for life, and then retire when you're 60, it just isn't possible anymore. Seen massive asset price inflation, both equity markets, as well as things like real estate. So they actually need to find their own way to making progress and retiring, however they might define it. And that's why they're sort of more open-minded to trying new approaches. So that's what I think is most interesting about Gen Z. And then look, if you just take a look at student-focused financial services, there's been a huge amount of pullback because of Dodd-Frank and because a lot of issuers and banks were no longer allowed to market credit products to students in the same way that they were pre-2008. So a lot of folks have just sort of pulled out of that market and there's a gap, which means an opportunity for startups. Right. This is the digitally native generation, right? It's digitally native, but I actually think that's the least interesting thing about them. You know, I think the most interesting thing is that they're super skeptical and they are, you know, willing to actually take creative approaches to making financial progress. I think the magic of the generation too is they understand companies need to make money and they're willing to just pay for things. No, you don't need to fool them. If you provide real value and you charge them money, they're willing to pay for it, which is why you see the rise of you know, business models like subscriptions over ads. The industry seems to be booming and there are all sorts of products coming out. But do you think there's something that fintech as a whole is getting wrong these days or maybe that could be doing better? Anything you'd like to see more of? Yeah, one part of that I think is this whole point about you know, not enough new ideas in the software. Most of the new ideas being focused in the sort of financial products versus software products. I think part of that is an infrastructure opportunity. A lot of companies have built on similar infrastructure with a similar set of primitives, which means that there's only so many new things they can do. And now I think we're seeing a new set of infrastructure companies as well as sort of existing fintech infra companies building a lot more flexible infra, which should allow for much more interesting software products. I think that's one thing we're getting wrong. I also think that while it's great, a ton of companies have focused on non-prime consumers, you know, the working poor and folks that are sort of living paycheck to paycheck. There really hasn't been a lot of focus on um, near prime, the middle class. 
And this is a super interesting segment because it's the folks who are most likely to be mispriced. They're people who have access to credit, but it's not usually efficiently priced credit. They're folks who have a lot of credit movement. You know, their scores often go up, sometimes go down. So there's a really big opportunity to focus on this audience and no one's really going after it today. And going back to your initial point, which is, I guess, the tech side of fintech, right? Mm-hmm. We haven't talked a lot about your investing process, but let's say you get a very interesting company and they claim that they have amazing technology. How would you go about and actually proof? How would you vet it? Well, look, I think that the technology in a vacuum, while intellectually interesting, isn't sufficient. I think it's got to be the combination of the technology and what it's doing for people. And usually that's evidenced in the metrics. You know, the reason we look at metrics is not because we're trying to do some kind of a discounted cash flow analysis of how we should value the business. Instead, the way you might think about it is an out-of-the-money call option. And the metrics that the company shows is evidence that the market wants the product. So that's really how I look for what is the sort of what's the applicability and how successful is the technology in solving problems that people have? Because ultimately that's, you know, where technology turns into business. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit uh, Latin America, but how about the rest of the world? Are you paying a lot of attention to other regions outside of the U.S.? Definitely. You know, I think that the interesting thing about fintech is that it's default local, not default global. If you look at most other software categories, they are default global. You know, the Google of the U.S. is going to be the Google of Canada and the Google of India. And while there are some sort of locale-specific changes, generally software products appeal to a global audience. Whereas with fintech products, you know, you have different regulations, you have different consumer preferences, you have different credit spectrums, you have different levels of sort of unbanked versus underbanked. So there's just a hugely different set of opportunities, even country to country, across country to country, much less globally. So we're definitely interested in geos, including LATAM, and and as well as the rest of the world that are outside of the US. So would it be a a red flag if a company comes and says that they want to expand internationally very quickly and early on? I think that this is one of the challenges that a lot of the European neobanks faced. For them to achieve their growth ambitions, they had to either expand across continental Europe or come to the U.S. Many of them focused on come to the U.S., you know, Revolut and 26, which makes total sense. The size of the prize is so significant. But the challenge is for someone like a Revolut who is prime focused on a problem that sort of wealthy people in the U.K. had, which is high Forex fees when they traveled, like that product doesn't have the same applicability in the U.S., So essentially, you're sort of expanding internationally and you're trying to retry to find product market fit for a very different audience, which is a pretty tough challenge. So I think that international expansion can make sense, but it's something I would do a lot later than I might do in other tech categories. Uh, Absolutely. And let's talk a bit about your portfolio companies and perhaps when you think about them, are there any common traits that your portfolio companies would have or or common traits that you look for? Yeah, look, I think a big thing that I've really come to appreciate is the importance of founder market fit. How authentic is the founder to the problem that they're solving? I think the reason for this is that it's easy to come up with one good idea, or perhaps it's easy to fast follow one good idea. 
but the number of good ideas that you need to have to actually make a startup work, you know, there's, you could think of these as arbitrages or sort of insights that the market doesn't yet have. Even at Credit Karma, there was probably four or five major insights along the way. And those insights couldn't have been achieved if the founders weren't so well suited to solving the problem. So I think that's the biggest thing that's changed for me in my investing style as an angel versus as a professional investor has really been looking for this founder market fit. Yeah. And I guess remotely, the due diligence process changes a little bit. How do you get to know the founder over Zoom? We recently interviewed the folks from B Capital, right? Raj. And he was saying that their approach, you know, has to be a lot more thorough and is going to involve more phone calls or different sorts of due diligence that they weren't performing before. How has it changed for you? I actually, it's academic for me right now because all the investments that I've made, I have at least gone for a socially distanced walk with folks. So we're still spending time with teams in person because there's just something about that in-person connection that is so hard to replace. I do think it will change. I think the nature of all work is changing very quickly right now, but I haven't personally done an investment where I have not met the team in person. Got it. And uh, speaking of COVID, everyone talks about the lessons learned and we, we kind of hear the very similar topics, right? But from your point of view, are there any counterintuitive lessons that you've learned over this past six, seven months? Yeah, you know, Miguel, I'm an optimist. So let me tell you the good news, or at least the thing that perhaps is unexpectedly better than I would have predicted in March, which is consumer balance sheets are relatively healthy. If you take a look at loss rates on personal loans and credit cards, and usually those are the canary in the coal mine for other types of large-scale consumer losses and bankruptcies, they're actually very much under control. You know, JP Morgan just announced their earnings today, I believe, and they sort of set aside less money for losses than they had previously. So number one, there's actually a far less losses than we expected. Part of that is the stimulus. Part of that is people are just staying at home. They're spending less money. And then if you take a look at other measures of consumer financial health, like the amount of equity they have in their homes, we're in a much better position than we were 10 years ago. So look, this can't go on forever, obviously, and we probably do need more round of stimulus, but the consumer is in much better shape than they were. And look, all hope is not lost, contrary to what you might read in the press. Good. I'm a fellow optimist, so I'd like to hear that. <laughs> got to be. As a builder, you got to be. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, fascinating stuff, Anish. Very excited for everything you're doing. Before we go, we always like to ask about some of the hobbies of our guests. You know, maybe you could tell us how you spend some of your time outside of A16Z. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been spinning records for a long time, for almost 25 years. So you can give me the SoundCloud follow, Ill Science, I-L-L in the word science. And for me, it's a ton of fun. You know, it's a creative outlet. I think creativity is a muscle like anything else, and it atrophies if you don't use it. So I get on the turntables and like to play at least once a week. And it's also a really interesting category from a business perspective, you know, because I think music has the best product and the worst business model. So I've always been super intellectually curious about how that's going to change as well. Well, for anyone listening, stay for the last three minutes because we're going to play some of Anish's music. All right. Okay, cool. <laughs> Great. No, fascinating. Thank you so much again, Anish. Really interesting stuff. Love what you guys are doing. And now you're a friend of Wharton. And once things go back to normal, I'm sure everyone would love to see you around campus. 
I'd love to visit, man. Thank you for having me. And, you know, we should spend more time together. I'm really, really bullish about everything that is happening in FinTech. I love the content on the podcast and I'd love to spend more time. Thank you so much. Hey, baby, come on in. I've been waiting for you. Sit down, relax. You know, I got a few things I've been thinking about. and I'd like to share them with you. I know things have been a little strained around here lately because of all the all the stuff going on outside the house, you know, the pressure, the job, all those things that can weigh you down. You know, sometimes, just sometimes, you bring that home with you. And I understand, but you know, I want us to just stop for a minute and think about how much we have together. I'm not talking about the material things, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the years that we've given to each other, the laughter, the tears, the joy, and oh yes, we can't forget about the heartbreak, but hey, we're still together, not because we have to be, but because we want to be, I know we can make it, baby, we can make it. That's right.